If you want to um, follow in your Bibles or on your tablets this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Revelation chapters 12 to 14. And um, we're at the very center of Revelation, both physically at the center of the book, but also getting to the core, really, of the message of, of this book and um, this letter, this prophecy, this apocalypse, this revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want to look this morning at four questions, really, that I think in this interlude, after we've looked at the, um, the, the seven seals, the opening of the seven seals by the Lamb of God, who is worthy to open this scroll, the vision of heaven, and, and, and the question is asked, who is worthy to open this scroll? And, and the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, opens the seven seals and speaks of the judgment and the revelation and the salvation of God throughout the ages in the church age between his first and second coming in. And like Russian dolls, when we get to the end of one set of seven, we get to the start of another set of seven and, and the seven trumpets and this alarm call of God, the, the judgment of God that we looked at last time. And then we come to this interlude uh, where we get these signs, these visions again of what is really going on. And I, I think we're going to look at the questions this morning. First of all, what is really going on, John is asking the churches and the church at the age. What is really going on behind the scenes of world history? What is really going on this week in the United Kingdom behind the scenes? In the spiritual realm, what is really happening? What is our spiritual reality? And I think a second question that I want to ask this morning that I think comes through these chapters as John writes of his visions of heaven is whose side are you on? And we're given a stark choice um, in these chapters where we can't sit on the fence but we have to pick a side. We have to determine whose side we are on and, and that will then lead to the third question of what will happen to the two sides at the end of the age and in the judgment of God. And finally, how do we make sure that we win? How do we make sure that we are on the winning side, the overcoming side? What is really going on? We have said that this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, is an unveiling, is a, is a pulling back of the curtain of heaven as John has these various visions on the isle, island of Patmos and as he writes to these seven churches in, in Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey and as he shares these prophetic views of, of God and, and Satan and the, and the heavenly realms, the realm of spiritual reality, the question is asked, what is really going on behind the scenes? Uh, Abraham Kuyper wrote these words. He said, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there, that is where the real conflict is engaged. Our earthly struggle drones in its backlash. We are not fighting, Paul said, as he wrote to the church in Ephesus, one of these seven churches, in his letter to the Ephesians and his talk to them about spiritual warfare. 
He said, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We are fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And we look in these chapters at kind of that spiritual battle that is going on in the heavenly realms that has been taking place, of the realm of spiritual reality. We look at what is really going on behind the scenes as John writes to these seven churches and he addresses some of them who are facing persecution and the loss of members of their church. Think of Cleopas at, at Pergamon and who, who's given up his life. Some of the church leaders are, are beaten to death, are crucified. John is exiled because of the word of God and because of his testimony. The church is facing very real persecution. They are excluded from Roman society because of their stand against the imperial cult, their refusal to call Caesar Lord and God and everlasting king and the various deistic titles that were given to the Caesars at this time. And the church had to stand back and say, there is really only one king, there is only one everlasting king, one Lord and one God, and his name is Jesus. And because of that, they were excluded from various guilds and various economic circles, and they were excluded from society. They were persecuted, and some of them gave their very lives. They were the first, in that sense, martyrs. The Greek word martus, meaning to bear witness. They bore witness with their very lives. And John is addressing those in the church, and down through the ages of the church. Do you know, in the last 150 years, more martyrs have given their life for Christ than in the previous 1,800 years. It is still going on that people are giving their lives for Christ, for their faith in Jesus Christ. Today, around the world, people are dying because they are proclaiming Christ as their Savior and Lord. And John addresses those churches in, in the first century, but he addresses the church down through the ages, and he speaks to the persecuted church. But he also speaks to the compromising church. He speaks as he writes to these seven churches. He picks out certain churches that are allowing certain types of teaching to come into the church, whether it's the teaching of the Nicolaitans, whatever they taught, or whether the ancient teaching, the kind of the idolatry of Jezebel or, or Balaam. Or, um, but there's certain types of teaching that are coming into the church, and, and John challenges them. Jesus challenges them through John and through this revelation that they are compromising the gospel. And there are others John addresses, and again, the first century church, but the church down through the ages, those that have become complacent in their faith, that are lacking passion, that have become lukewarm in their devotion to Christ, that have lost their first love. And as John pulls back the curtain um, here, he's asking really the question, what is going on behind the scenes? What is the spiritual reality of the things that are happening in the church? And what is the fundamental cause for the hostility facing the church, whether it's in the Roman Empire or whether it's today around the world? What is the fundamental cause for the hostility that is facing the church? And the fundamental cause, John says, through his vision, is the rage of Satan, the reason for the satanic rage. Let's read some of these words. And I want to remind you as we read them that this is apocalyptic literature. It's highly symbolic. It uses strong, vivid pictures. It uses numbers and symbols to paint an, a vivid picture, like an impressionist painting of what is happening. So 
uh, it's not, much of it is not to be taken literally, but it is representative of spiritual realities. So let's read some verses from chapter 12 of Revelation. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, and she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth, and the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. And then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We see here... What is really going on, we see here the rage of Satan. We see here a a woman about to give birth, uh, and in verse 5, she gives birth to a male child who will rule other nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Who is this woman that is seen in this vision by John This woman is none other than the covenantal people of God throughout the ages, the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, The covenant promise came to Abraham uh, that through his seed all nations would be blessed. We read at the start of uh, this uh, Bible, we read in Genesis chapter 3, we read uh, that uh, this battle will take place between the seed of uh, the woman and, uh, and Jesus, and he will bruise um, Genesis 3, verse 15. Let's, let's read that together. Uh, 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Um, And the covenant promise of God came to Abraham that through his seed all nations would would be blessed. What is really going on here? What is really going on is the woman stands and uh, the dragon waits, waits for her to give birth. It's a grotesque scene as the, as the dragon waits for the woman to give birth and seeks to devour this child in verse 5, this male child. We're told uh, that he will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, uh, which is a, a reference to uh, Psalm 2 and the prophecy of a messianic king that would come and would rule the nations with an iron scepter. And we think of the birth of Jesus, and we think of the plan to kill him, even as he was born, through Herod, the king at that time, and his attempts to slaughter the firstborn, those young children, all children under the age of two, to try and kill this child at birth. We think of the attempts of Satan to kill Jesus, as he comes and speaks to him in the wilderness and tempts him and says, if you throw yourself off this temple, uh, you will survive. You will not be harmed. And the temptation of Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness. We think of Judas as he comes and plots against Jesus and seeks to snuff out his life and his ministry on earth. And we think of those crowds that stand and shout uh, under some kind of demonic influence when They are given the choice, who would you like to crucify? Would you like to crucify this Jesus or would you like to crucify Barabbas? And and they cried out under the auspices and the leadership of the spiritual leaders and the religious leaders of that day, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we see Jesus going to Calvary and to the cross and we see his life taken like a lamb that was slain. And we, we see the enactment of this verse where the great red dragon comes and seeks to kill this child and to destroy him uh, and to take him uh, out. And we see there this great spiritual battle that takes place between Jesus and between this ancient serpent. But this woman is not just... In, you might read that and you might think, well, that, that looks like the woman is Mary if she gave birth to Jesus. But then we read in... Verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the people of God down throughout the ages. This is the church of Jesus Christ and the offspring of this woman, those that profess Christ, those that uh, obey his commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. There is a great battle that goes on, and this great red dragon, as it is depicted here in Revelation chapter 12, comes against the woman and seeks to destroy the child and then takes rage against the church. And we see that Satan is raging here, and we see the reasons for the satanic rage. Because in chapter 12, verse 12, we read that he knows that his time is short. He knows that he is a defeated enemy. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Satan is a defeated foe. 
He has been hurled down. We read again and again and again through this passage. In chapter 12, verse 8, he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. In verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, his angels with him. In verse 10, I heard a loud voice for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before a day, God, day and night has been hurled down. In chapter 12, verse 12, therefore rejoice, you heavens. He is filled with fury because the devil has gone down to you. Chapter 12, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So Satan is in a rage. Even though he is defeated, he is hurled down from heaven in this great battle with the angelic powers. But he knows that his time is short. And he also knows that his sphere is restricted in verse 13. He is, saw that he had been hurled to the earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And he also knows that his success is limited. In verses 14 to, to 17, we read of his attempts to come against the woman in various ways, the church of Jesus Christ. But his success is limited. What are the reasons for this satanic rage? Because he knows his time is short. He knows his sphere is restricted. He knows his success is limited. And we read here references to the woman being carried by eagle's wings into the wilderness, uh, which is a reference to Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God delivered his people. He delivered them through the waters. He kept them safe and he preserved his people down throughout the ages. And from a heavenly perspective, John is saying, evil rages on the earth, not because it is so powerful, but because it is so vulnerable, because its time is so limited. In the Second World War, when Hitler was ultimately defeated, when millions of men and material had been landed on the Normandy beaches, and victory in Europe was absolutely assured. Still, the Nazis turned and fought the Battle of the Bulge. Still, they came for more. They pushed back, even though they were ultimately, absolutely, and fundamentally defeated. Their time was short, and so the rage increased. And we see here Satan being hurled down, this great red dragon. And this is what happened as Jesus came down upon this earth and as he started his ministry and as his kingdom came upon the earth and as he started to send out his disciples to preach the gospel and the good news of the kingdom, they came back to Jesus and they were amazed at what was happening and they were filled with joy. And they said to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. And nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so we see as the kingdom of God begins to come, as the rule of Christ is inaugurated on the earth, Satan, I saw Satan falling like lightning. We also read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, as Jesus goes to the cross and is crucified. 
We read, he canceled the record of the charges against us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. There was one who was the accuser of the brethren. There was one who was called the destroyer in previous chapters of Revelation. And his work is destroyed. His accusations are silenced as Jesus goes to the cross. And so we have in chapter 12, as John pulls back the veil, we have this picture of, um, of the woman, the church, and in travail. And we could go into numerous kind of Old Testament references to that if we had the time we have the birth of the male child, the fulfillment of, uh, of uh, Psalm 2, the promise of a messianic king, one who would be reigning as king in Zion, as one who would rule with an iron scepter. We have the satanic, the dragon-like attempt to kill the male child. And we have here in one line in Revelation, we have the life of Jesus, really, because he was born, he was snatched up to heaven, uh, and he was protected from uh, the evil one. That is really the, the whole life and ministry and ascension of Jesus in one line of revelation because what John is really focusing on here is not Jesus and his work in that sense, but the church and what is happening to the church and why the church is facing such opposition and why the church is so tempted to compromise and to be compliant because we have an enemy of our souls, one who is full of rage. He is a defeated enemy. He is one who has been hurled down and defeated uh, by the heavenly powers. He has been defeated at the cross where Jesus disarmed him and led him captive. Uh, he has fallen like lightning from heaven. He is a defeated foe, but he is still a foe, and he still comes against the church. He still rages against the church down through the ages. And as we move into Revelation 13, we come up against two further kind of depictions of evil. We, we have the red dragon with the great tail that sweeps the stars out of the sky, that attacks the woman, that attacks the church. But in verses 13, we have two beasts that are introduced, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and he had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. And man, men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? And the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. And he opened his mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. And if anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. 
This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. The beast represents really the historical concrete opposition to God's people, the threats that confront God's people in many generations. Many commentators think that the beast in this, this first beast, the beast of the sea, represents political power and political kingdoms. There are four faces here that are listed, um, four beasts. There is the the one that, or uh, there are four elements of the beast, uh, the bear, the lion, uh, and uh, the leopard, and the ten horns. And um, this is a composite. It's a composite of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a, a, a vision of four beasts, and one has the face of a leopard and one of a lion, and, and uh, the same four elements, the ten horns, uh, they're, they're all in Daniel chapter 7, but here they are brought together in, in one beast. Uh, now, in Daniel's day, there were four kingdoms that were represented by these beasts, four political kingdoms that rose up against the people of God, four, four political forces. And, and as Daniel saw these visions in, in Daniel chapter 7, uh, he reflected on those four kingdoms. What then is the beast of the sea, asks Daryl Johnson. It is the state, it is human kingdoms that have ejected God from the center of their lives. At the time that John wrote, the beast was manifested in Rome. It is dra- dragon-manipulated political power. It is governments which step out from under the rule of God. And in doing that, they don't become divine. They become demonic. It is government that exalts humanity as the measure of all things, that they do not, in that moment, become more humane. They become more bestial. It is Egypt, and it is Assyria, and it is Babylon, and it is Rome, and it is communism, and it is Nazism, and it is a decadent Western culture. It is the cultures down through the ages, through manifested through. It's the dragon manifesting his power through two beasts, through two agents. There is, in the following chapters of Revelation, this unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And the false prophet refers to the second beast that is referred to here in this chapter 12. There is here an unholy alliance, an unholy trinity, as it's been called, that counteracts and comes against the trinity, the holy trinity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And it manifests itself through political power and through political systems and through states and through governments, through powers that rise up against the people in the church of God down throughout the ages. The beast of the sea... Now, you can argue over the interpretation of this, and you, you can argue over uh, elements of, of the symbolism. But I think what John was doing, I think, as he wrote to these early churches, would, he'd be very much speaking into a current political situation, just as Daniel was when he spoke of the four beasts that were rising up against the people of Israel. Down through the ages, down through the church ages, there have been various representations of this power, of this of government that takes God out of the picture. It's been very interesting watching the development of the European Union and how in the founding documents of the European Union they refused to have any acknowledgement or mention of God at all. And 
Now, that's not to say that the European Union is the beast, but it is to say it's a depiction of, a representation of any political power, any governmental system, any rule of man that puts humanism at the center and pushes God aside is blasphemous. It is blasphemous and it is idolatrous. And it undermines the kingdom of God. And it's what's happening in John's day. And it's what's happening in our day. And it's what's happened down throughout the ages. And though the beast may seem to be slain, it rises again. And though communism may seem to die in one place, it rises again. And Nazism and fascism <coughs> and world systems and ideas and governmental powers, they come and they go, they ebb and they flow. We look at the own tumult in our own nation over these past weeks. And I don't care if you're blue or red or yellow. Ultimately, political systems are not the answer. They're not the answer. They won't deal with the significant problems of humankind. When the Times held an essay um, competition to ask the question, what is the problem with humankind, G.K. Chesterton wrote in and he said, Dear sir, I am. The problem is the problem of the human heart. The problem is also a demonic one, a spiritual battle that takes place in the heavenly realms. We have here a dragon. We're talking pictures here and symbols. Vivid imagery, evoking of the imagination of the early church. You want to know what's really going on, John says. Here, let's pull back the curtain of the spiritual reality, of spiritual warfare, of a dragon that has sought to kill and destroy Jesus that is now enraged against his church down throughout the ages and is going after everyone that would pronounce his name and has the mark of the lamb, the seal of the lamb upon them. So the beast rises up, the beast out of the sea. And some commentators have, have uh, linked these two beasts also to the words in, in Job and the, the behemoth and the Lev Leviathan, the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. But then comes the beast of the earth, the next beast, which is also called the false prophet in the coming chapters. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, who made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth, and he ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the name or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. The beast of the earth. He's been called by F.F. F. Bruce, the minister of propaganda for the Antichrist. He's a propagandist for the beast of the sea. He is the one that glorifies the beast of the sea. Nancy Guthrie writes about this. She says, We could think of the beast from the earth as the deceitful propaganda machine for the beast from the sea. Whereas the first beast relies mainly on power, 
The second beast supports him with lies. His lies produce false religion. And not just religion as we might define it, but also the political and social ideologies that have essentially become a religion to many people. We are surrounded by the voice of this beast in government, in media, in entertainment, that touts progress beyond the narrow thinking of the Bible, the God of the Bible, its message of salvation and judgment, and its call to holy living. This has been equated to false religion, false prophecy, to religious systems, to sociological systems, to ideologies that rise up and become established. It is in vivid picture, a depiction of Romans chapter 1 where the people exchange the truth of God for a lie. If the first beast uses mainly power, whether that's political power, governmental power, it uses power. The second beast uses deception and lies and propaganda. I look at our media. I look at the films we watch, the stories that we hear, the sitcoms, the soap operas. I look at false religious systems that rise up. I look at ideologies and ideas that become ensconced in human society and culture. D.A. Carson has written a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance, which states basically that we will tolerate your views as long as your views are in line with our ideology. And if they are not, we will not tolerate you. The beast of the earth is the propaganda the minister of propaganda for the beast of the sea, the, the Antichrist. It's this unholy triumvirate, this unholy trinity of Satan and his agents. That Down through the ages, it was certainly in John's day, but it is down through the ages, through political systems, through ideologies, through groupthink, through anything and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. In the New Testament, it's referred to as the doctrine of demons, <laughs> of untruths. And sometimes it latches onto religious systems as well. In John's day, it did. In John's day, there were those that were bringing offerings that would line up with the offerings to idols, that would line up with the temple worship, which was indulgent of and including a lot of sexual mispractice. And there were those of the religious system that would line themselves up with these lies and these deceptions and would be propagandists, really, for the work of Satan. There's an interesting encounter between Jesus and Peter in the New Testament where Peter says, Lord, you, you won't go. You won't give up your life. I won't allow it. This won't happen. And Jesus knows what his plan of redemption and salvation is. He knows that he's going to the cross. He knows that it will cost his very life to save mankind. And Peter tries to stop him, tries to hold him back. And, and Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, is Jesus saying that Peter is demon-possessed? or is, He's not saying that. But he recognizes the deception behind the words. He recognizes the untruth. He recognizes what is really happening. And that Nancy Guthrie says, whenever a pulpit is used to encourage compromise with culture, 
so that our Christianity will be accepted or applauded, we're hearing the voice of the beast. And these are things that we need to think about. This is a spiritual reality, if you like. This is the pulling back of the curtain of the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. And Paul is so right when he says, this isn't a flesh and blood battle. It's not like if you're Labour and, and the Conservatives are the problem, or if you're Conservatives, Labour's the problem, or... It's not that. It's, it's not a, a flesh and blood problem. It's not a political system problem. This is a, this is a problem with, with evil. It's a problem with spiritual powers and forces. With a satanic force that is so furious against the church. Because he knows that his time is limited. He knows his space is restricted. He knows that he is a defeated foe. He knows that he has fallen from heaven. And yet he still rages against the church. So we could, we don't have the time, and I'm aware again that there are different interpretations. We could go into more detail of of this, but I I think as we pull back the curtain on chapter 12 and chapter 13 and this unholy trinity of of the dragon, which is described as the ancient serpent, which is called Satan, the devil, and his agents on earth, these two beasts, the false prophet and the beast, the beast of the sea and the beast of the land, I think political and governmental forces and forces of propaganda and untruth that spreads throughout society and is as prevalent as ever. I ask myself, what role does social media play in this as well? And Twitter and the spreading of lies and the piling on of mobs and the cancelling of people that will speak out against certain ideas. It looks as though it fits in in some ways power of social media and the role that that's playing in our day in the spreading of lies and untruths and things that come against biblical truth. So the first question really is what's really going on? And I think John is painting a picture here of what is really going on. The second question is whose side are you on? We here have here the mark of the lamb or the mark of the beast. There is a mark that is put on those that are believers in Jesus Christ. We read it in Revelation 7, 2, verse 4. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then in Revelation 14, verse 1, we have the same thing happening. I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Is this a literal writing of the Lord's name on our foreheads? It's not. It's symbolic. It's a symbol of protection, and it's a symbol of ownership. But then we get to the mark of the beast and the number of the beast in chapter 13, verses 16 to 18. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. And Ephesians, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And now comes this number 666. This is the number of man. This is the number of man without God. The perfect number in the Bible and in Revelation is seven. We have here a trinity of sixes that falls short of the perfect trinity of God. It is man without God. It's the picture book version of Romans 1, verse 21 to 23, that they forsook God and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It is, as Hendrickson says, it's failure upon failure upon failure. It is to be completely incomplete. We are sealed or marked as set apart for God by the Holy Spirit. The mark of the beast, I think, is figurative language for what marks a person who has a very different loyalty, a very different identity, a different belonging and a different purpose. As Nancy Guthrie writes, their lives reflect, or we could say they are marked by having given themselves over to the counterfeit trinity. And John says, we need wisdom. This calls for wisdom. This calls for discernment. And whose side are you on? Because I think what John is asking in Revelation, the compromising church, the compliant church, the suffering church, Whose side are you on? Which mark will you have? Will you be marked by the mark of the beast and the systems and the ideologies of this world or will you be marked by the Lamb of God and the seal of the Lamb of God? Which will it be? And John looks in chapter 14 and he sees 144,000. The redeemed of the Lord, I think it's symbolic, 12 times 12 times 1,000. The same group that's described in chapter 7. And they have not defiled themselves, we read. It's not that they are virgins. It's it's a language that is used in the Bible, in Corinthians, that I I am jealous for you with a a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. In Amos, fallen is virgin Israel. There's, There's a sense of this being the people of God who have followed the Lamb, who have been marked with the seal of the Lamb, with the blood of Jesus Christ. And, uh, what will happen to the two sides? Well, chapter 14 tells us we are majorly out of time, so we'll just have to skim over this. But at the end of the age, we read in chapter 14, there is a great harvest. And we see a Lord coming with a sickle, and we see him bringing in the harvest, but we also see that there is a harvest of grapes, and there is a trampling of the grapes of wrath the harvest of the earth at the end of time. There is a judgment. The imagery here, again, comes from the Old Testament. You've got Joel chapter 3, 13 and 14. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6, if you want to read it, it's the trampling of the grapes of wrath. It's the splashing of blood on the white gowns. It's, it's gruesome. It's the hymn of the Republic that is sings, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the wraps of grapes, grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. What becomes of those who refuse to receive the mark of the beast and they are killed. Revelation 14 tells us 
It tells us, I looked and I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. I saw the 144 with him. I saw the Father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, like a peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing the harps. They sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 that had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. John is saying, this is what happens. It might, on earth, it might not look like this. You might be losing your livelihood. You might be facing economic deprivation. You might be excluded from society. You might have refused to bow down. You might be refusing to go along with the teaching of culture. You might be excluded in many ways. But I'm telling you, you're on the winning side. You're on the winning side. And the Lamb will overcome, and Satan is already defeated. Luther wrote this great hymn and we'll, about a mighty fortress is our God. What becomes of those who refuse to receive the mark of the beast? We read it in verses 1 to 5. But what becomes of those who serve the beast, who are his servants, who have the mark of the beast, the mark of mankind? Uh, the, the judgment is terrible and full and gruesome. The trampling out of the grapes of wrath, the, the, the judgment of God. And if you read it, the picture is horrible. The blood rises up to the height of a horse over a period of a space of 1,600 stadia. It's 40 times 40. Whose side are you on? Because ultimately there will be a judgment, John says, in the end. And only those who have received the mark of God, the seal of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ, only they will overcome. Who will overcome? That's our final question. How do we make sure that we're on the right side? How do we make sure that we have the mark of the Lamb, the seal of God? We read in chapter 12, verse 10 to 12, Then I heard a, a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Yeah. Luther wrote this song, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper here amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work as woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks for them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him 
who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. John says, we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And that is on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. Imagine that Passover, that first Passover, and the command of Moses came to the people of Israel, you must take the blood of a lamb and daub it on your doorpost to be protected from the angel of death. And Bob and Charlie, two Jews, obvious Jewish names, went and took the blood of the lamb and they and Bob was like, I don't really know whether this, what are we doing? Why is Moses telling us to do this? This just seems crazy to me. But he says, well, I guess there's nothing to lose. He takes the blood and he daubs it on his doorpost. And Charles, he's like, oh, this is Moses. This is what God is saying. This is the judgment of God. I've got faith that if we put this blood over our doorposts, then that's what will prevail. We will prevail against judgment. And so he paints the blood over his doorpost. Which of those two men are saved in their households? They are both saved. They are saved on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. I don't care if your faith is faltering and weak and frail, or if it's robust and strong and powerful, you are saved on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. And that is how we overcome. That is how we overcome That is how we overcome Satan. That is how Jesus overcame him. The blood of the Lamb. We overcome on the basis and on the grounds of our testimony. We are never more than one generation away from obliteration as the church of Jesus Christ. We had better evangelize or we have nothing. We overcome by the words of our testimony. As we stand and we give testimony to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they overcame because they were willing to die. They were willing, even unto death, to lay down their lives. And Jesus said, if you follow me, you've got to lay down your life. You've got to lay down your life if you want to follow me. You've got to be willing to die. And that is how we overcome. We are willing to lay down our life for the sake of the gospel. They overcame by the blood of their testimony. They overcame by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, they did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. We've looked at four questions really today very quickly, but what is really going on? What is the spiritual reality? Whose side are you on? What will happen to the two sides? And how do we win and how do we overcome? I don't think there's anything new under the sun, and I think, I think that many of the things that John was addressing in first century Christianity, he could address today. We face the same battles. They just have different faces, different power systems, different lies, different technologies, the same evil triumvirate that would come against the church of Jesus Christ, and we must stand in the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Paul said, take up your weapons in Ephesians 6. Take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the truth of God, and pray. 
Pray. Pray in the Spirit. Pray on all occasions. Pray. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the belt of truth. Have your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel. Because we are not fighting flesh and blood enemies. We're fighting evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and the hope of revelation that Satan has been hurled down. He is a defeated foe. And whatever agents he uses on this earth, whatever political forces, whatever governmental misuse of power, whatever propaganda, whatever channels of untruth and blasphemy, we thank you, God, that your truth remains, that the Lamb is on the throne. The Lamb reigns. The Lamb overcomes. The Lamb has overcome. And ultimately, God, there will be, at the end of time, a judgment. And we will either have upon our foreheads the mark of the Lamb or the mark of the beast. And I pray, God, that each one of us would make sure that we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We put our faith in the cross, upon the death of Jesus for us. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And whoever you are today, you may find some of this language difficult, some of the imagery challenging, but I think it speaks a powerful truth. And you can say, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I would want you to make sure that you are under the protection of the blood of the Lamb. I would want you to have the word of your testimony. I would want you to be willing to give your life to follow Christ, to lay down your life and to put him in charge. So I pray for you. I pray if you don't know Jesus this morning, I pray that you will commit your life to him. I pray that you would open your heart to him and to faith in Jesus and to his rule and his reign. I pray that you would find yourself on the Lord's side and be marked by him, sealed by him, filled with his Holy Spirit. And you can just pray a simple prayer wherever you are. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I want to put my trust in you. And I, and I encourage you, I exhort you to pray and to give your life to Jesus, to submit to him and his rule. And Lord, I pray for every one of us. If we say that we are Christ followers, um, we know that we have an enemy of our souls, God. We know that he hates the church. We know that he uses agents upon this earth to come against it. But we also know the promise of Jesus, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. We also know that ultimately, Lord, we win. We pray that at that great end time harvest, God, that we will be amongst those that are amongst the 144,000, the people of God, the redeemed of the Lord who sing a new song. 
Lord, help us to remember these spiritual realities of what is really going on. Help us, Lord, to overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by a willingness to lay down our lives. Father, I pray that we would follow you and worship you and sing a new song. We pray in Jesus' name for saving faith to come to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.